You're listening to Smith Talk with Keith Smith. That would be me, free-thinking American educator, bringing you conservative commentary and analysis on the news of the moment, along with life advice and random facts. Currently, I teach civics and economics to high school seniors. I am a U.S. military veteran, active duty Air Force, Army National Guard, and Air Force Reserve. Thanks for listening. Five hundred and twenty-eight thousand jobs were added just last month to this country's employment. Five hundred and twenty-eight thousand jobs. We have now nearly doubled what we. We're almost at ten million jobs. Almost at ten million jobs since I took office. That's the fastest job growth in history. Today, we also matched the lowest unemployment rate in America in the last fifty years, three point five percent. Yes. 3.5%. Today, there are more people working in America than before the pandemic began. In fact, there are more people working in America than any point in American history. Hold it right there, Mr. President. We're going to cut the mic. You can fool some of the people all of the time, all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of us all of the time. The president here is painting as politicians and presidents are wont to do a extremely optimistic and overly rosy picture of the economy as we're experiencing it. Polling indicates that most people know that something is gravely wrong with our economy. And I'm going to talk about the jobs numbers just in just a moment here and going to shine some light on something that I haven't heard many, if anybody, discussing at all. And I'll get to that in just a moment about labor force participation and unemployment and so forth. Concepts that I would explain to my students in economics class that I do explain every year to them, how economists look at the economy, how healthy the economy is, and so on. How many of you know somebody who is not doing well economically? How many of you know somebody who's had hours cut at work? How many of you know somebody who's had to take an extra job? How many of you know somebody who's lost their job? Maybe it's you. How many of you have noticed differences in your own household economy. We have. We don't lack for any of the basic needs, but everything is more expensive. Shoot, living living in Southern, Southern California, we're paying twice as much for gas as we were a year and a half, of, half ago. And you look at what that does to your commute, you get to the point where you start cutting out things that are extra that you would, that would be nice to have that maybe are not needs, and you focus on getting things focus on getting things that you need and not things, not as many of the things that you want. And there are a lot of people doing this. In fact, most of us who are the average middle-class American workers are doing this. So what, what is it that's going on here? Let me shine some light on this. Go to bls.gov and that's where this information comes from. That would be the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Every year, every quarter and at the end of every month they report on employment in the United States or lack thereof. Well, here's their opening paragraph of the July report and this is what Joe Biden was talking about. Total non-farm payroll employment rose by 528,000 in July and the unemployment rate edged down to 3.5%. As far as the unemployment rate goes, that's not bad. That's that's actually pretty good. The US Bureau of Labor Statistics reported today 
Job growth was widespread, led by gains in leisure and hospitality, professional and business services and healthcare. Both total non-farm employment and the unemployment rate have returned to their February 2020 pre-pandemic levels. Here's what the president is not going to ever mention, and you're probably not going to find or hear about anybody on the left talk about this. And I haven't heard, I don't know that I've heard anybody on the right talk about this. So here's the deal. Economists will look at multiple things when they look at the health of the economy. Just last week or week before last, we had the GDP numbers, right? Down two quarters in a row, indicating that we are in a technical recession in spite of the word games that the White House tried to play with that. So unemployment rate is what you hear about all the time. The unemployment rate is the percentage of people who could work, workers in the United States, who are not employed. And the government tracks this by looking at files claimed for unemployment. How many people are receiving unemployment benefits this month compared to last month and so on? So it would stand to reason that if 3.5% of the workers in the United States are not working, they're unemployed, that 96.5% of those who could be employed would be working. Makes sense, right? If the unemployment rate is 3.5%, everybody else is working. Whoa, not so fast. The unemployment rate is faulty. It's manipulative. It's manipulated. It's easy to manipulate. Why? Well, let's say you've got somebody that was out looking for work. They filed for unemployment. The period of time for which they can receive unemployment ends. They're not employed. They're not looking for work. Now they're not counted anymore. The more accurate number to look at, and the one that you will not hear politicians ever talk about, is labor force participation rate. Well, what is labor force participation rate? Labor force participation rate is the percentage of workers who are actually working. Those who could work between the ages, I think they track it between the ages of like 17 and 65, who could work, how many are actually working? If you had to guess, what do you think that percentage would be? And I ask my students this every year, and my students are always floored after we learn about unemployment rate, when they look at it, and the students will always say, well, I don't know, not, you know, okay, in this case, 96.5%, the other 3.5% are unemployed, or maybe 90%, or maybe 80%. Here's a real number for you. The labor force participation rate was at 62.1%. And the employment population ratio was at 60%. And these were little changed from June to from June to July. These did not, these numbers did not change. The percent, so the unemployment rate went down, yet the percentage of the population actually employed did not change. And how does the government track labor force participation? Well, everybody who works and gets a paycheck is tracked by the IRS through your social security number and you pay payroll taxes. It's easier to track, and it's a more accurate number. The labor force participation rate is a far more accurate number. If you have 65, 66, 67%, and this is going back historically over the last four or five decades since women entered the workforce in larger numbers, 
if you have 65% or higher labor force participation rate, that's pretty dang good. You get down close to 60%, no bueno, not good. And this is the number that you will never hear a politician mention. They don't like it. Like I said, unemployment rate is easier to manipulate. And it just sounds nicer to say that three and a half percent unemployment. So here's a question. Well, let me give you another, another point of, of data here. According to the president, this is great. There are more people working than ever. There are more jobs being created. The economy is great. Ignore the, ignore the inflation. Ignore your neighbor that just got laid off. Ignore the fact that you're paying more for everything, etc. Both measures, labor force participation and the employment population ratio, which were in June and July at 62.1% and 60% respectively. And this is, I'm quoting directly from the Bureau of Labor Statistics from their website, bls.gov. I bold printed this in my copy here. Both measures remain below their February 2020 values of 63.4% and 61.2% respectively. So right before the pandemic, February of 2020, when we're, things are first starting to slow down, we're first starting to look at, you see in different parts of the country, mandates and things like this going into place, especially in blue states, and then everything kicks in in, in uh, early to mid-March of 2020. The, uh, the labor force participation rate was over two points higher, or it was one point higher, so it was it's at 62.1%, now it was at 63.4%, meaning that there were more people employed. If in June and July, more between June and July, more jobs were created, or more jobs were created in July. This supposedly this record number, right? How is it possible that the labor force participation rate, the, the number of people tracked that are actually working, did not change? And how is it possible that the president can say that we're back where we were pre-pandemic? Pandemic, sorry for the pronunciation there. That we're back to the pre-pandemic point when it comes to employment in this nation when fewer people are actually employed. So here's the question. How is it that the unemployment rate is going down or went down last month? It's at 3.5% while labor force participation stayed the same. And why has it not gone back up to what it was before the pandemic? That's a really good question. Well, if you read on in this report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's quite detailed. It tracks how many jobs were created and it tracks in what sector, as it did, as I, you know, like I read in that opening paragraph there, leisure, hospitality, professional services, et cetera, non, total non-farm employment, right? So they track also how many full-time jobs were created and how many part-time jobs were created. Here's the deal. Let me read it to you directly from the report here. The number of persons, quote, the number of persons employed part-time for economic reasons increased by 303,000 to 3.9 million part-time jobs in July. This rise reflected an increase, I continue quoting here, this rise 
reflected an increase in the number of persons whose hours were cut due to slack work or business conditions, end quote. So we added, the president's out there touting, we added 528,000 jobs in July. I know he didn't sound like that. He sounded more slow Joe, right? Sleepy Joe is as uh, President Trump used to like to, to refer to him. He liked to give people nicknames. Still likes to give people nicknames. So president's out there touting this job increase. Well, here's the deal. More than half of those were part-time jobs. More jobs were created or more people were employed at jobs, but more than half of those jobs were part-time jobs, over 303,000 out of 528,000. And the number of people actually employed and actually working did not change. Here's what happened. A bunch of people who are suffering because of this terrible economy had to go out and find some more moolah. They had to find a way to get some more scratch, some more money, some more ducats, some more bones, some more cash, if you will, to pay the bills. So maybe you had a family where the breadwinner, maybe it's a, maybe a single parent, right, is working a full-time or close to a job and they decided that they needed to go out and get another part-time job. Now they're working another night shift or they took an extra shift or they're maybe they're working in the convenience store at night after getting off work at their other job. They're working a second job. Maybe you've got a family with a stay-home parent. We stay-home mom, stay-home dad. And one of the parents, you have one parent that's a breadwinner and because they're trying to make ends meet, another parent goes out or somebody else in that household and gets a job that's a part-time job. That's what's going on here. I got news for you, as I like to say. I got news for you, tell my students this all. I got news for you. The economy is not as rosy as the president would like you to think. Bad things are coming economically, very bad things. It is time to be responsible, to figure out a way to life advice from. Smith here from Mr. Smith, as I would say to my students, life advice from Mr. Smith. Now's the time to get your house, your financial house in order. Cut unnecessary spending, get out of debt, work to get out of debt. At very least, stop spending more than you're bringing in every month. Save and prepare. So here's an article from just this last week, headline, and this is from Breitbart. And you would find headlines like this if you were to search the news from other uh, sources as well. Job openings plunge as employers pull back from hiring. And this is the first week of August. And I'm going to read here. This is uh, uh, the dateline is August 2nd, 2022. That's the headline job, line, job openings plunge as employers pull back from hiring. The number of job openings in the United States fell sharply in June Looking back to June, as the federal government hiked interest rates, gas prices hit record high, highs, inflation soared, and growth in consumer spending slowed. There were 10.7 million postings for job openings on the last day of business in June. The Bureau of Labor Statistics said Tuesday this was down from an upwardly revised 11.3 million a month earlier in May. So I'll stop right there. The number of job openings is shrinking, and you see. Go ahead and Google it. There are several large firms that are cutting back 
They're closing offices or they're cutting down on non-essential personnel and they're getting to they're getting ready to weather the economic storm that is coming. They are doing the firms are doing the things that I just suggested that you do with your own household. Right? Here's another one. Here's another headline dateline August 2nd, 2022 also from Breitbart. Credit card debt jumps most in 20 years as inflation soars. American households increasingly relied on their credit cards this spring as prices rose at the fastest rate in four decades. Credit card balances jumped $46 billion in the second quarter of the year compared with a year ago. Balances are up 13%, the largest increase in more than 20 years, according to data released Tuesday by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Credit card balances typically rise in April through June. Anyway, however, this year's increase was driven by the highest inflation rate in 40 years. The consumer price index was up 8.6% in the quarter compared with a year earlier, the biggest increase since the fourth quarter of 1981. And for those of you who are alive and old enough to remember, I was a small child in 1981, dating myself there. I remember, I, I think back to the 1980s, and I remember Ronald Reagan being president, and I remember, it's a nostalgic period for me, but I my parents, I talked with my parents about this time period, 1979, 1980, 1981. I believe, believe it was in 79, 80, my parents bought their first house. And I remember my, my dad telling me the interest rate was close to 10%. Things were pretty rough economically. We were still suffering the effects of the late 1970s Carter administration. You could also add Nixon to that, Nixon and Ford. They were the ones that made the decision. Nixon was the one that he was forced into it, made the decision to go off the gold standard in the United States dollar, adjusted itself to the to its actual value. That's that's a that's a that's a discussion for another day. What that did going off the gold standard. And maybe I'll give you guys the same lecture that I give my students about that. So that affected that time period. And then you had uh, President Carter. And his period of economic malaise, as it's termed, and, and it, just a series of, of very poor decisions that he made and his management of the economy that exacerbated things. So 1981, not the greatest time economically. Our, the consumer price index is up higher at, at, at its highest point that it's been since the late 1980s, since the, since the last big uh, recession not counting the Great Recession. And I could go through the prices here. You guys all know, if you go to the gas pump, I'm paying in Southern California, may have mentioned this already, twice as much for gas as I did a year and a half ago. And what does that do to your commute? I'm spending twice as much on gas commuting when I go to work than I did a year and a half or two ago. And so uh, the food prices, you look at food, food prices are up. At the highest point, we're, we're experiencing the highest inflation with food prices since 1979. So what is going on here is people are not making ends meet with their income. And they're going out and they're trying to find a second job, a part-time job, somebody in their household trying to get some more money. And they're pulling out their credit card because they've got nothing left in the savings account and they need to buy groceries or they need to buy gas to get to work. They need to buy gas to get to their second job and they pull out their credit card because the account's empty or they go get a payday loan. By the way, never do that. Life advice 
never get a payday loan. They're terrible. But people are people are going and, and trying to get the basic needs using their credit card. And that's what we have going on here. Last thing we'll look at here with the economy as I debunk this line from the president in the White House about how great the economy is, etc. Last one here. Dateline, August 1st, 2022. This is an article from the Epoch Times. By the way, highly recommend the Epoch Times. Well worth the subscription fee of $69 a year. I think it's like 69, 70 bucks a year to get it. I've been getting it for a few years now. I get once a week, I get a print version and access to everything they have online. Great source. So here's here's the headline. Fed Bank, Fed Bank president sends dire warning about inflation. It's spreading out. The Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis president warned Sunday, this would be last Sunday, that the current rate of inflation is troubling and will spread across the country. No, duh. No, duh. It's very concerning. We keep getting inflation readings, new data that comes in as recently as this past week, and we keep getting surprised. It's higher than we expect. Fed branch president Neil Kashkari said on CBS News, Face the Nation, and it's not just a few categories, it's spreading out more broadly across the economy, and that's why the Federal Reserve is acting with such urgency to get it under control and bring it back down. He said that wages are increasing for many Americans. However, so are the cost of goods and services, adding that workers will suffer a real wage cut due to price pressures. Wages are not going up as fast as inflation. So most Americans' real wages, real incomes are going down. No, duh. Go talk to any person on the street. How, how are they surprised by this? Seriously. You folks at the Fed, you, you people running the Fed. Holy cow. Would that we could pull a Donald Trump and just say, you're fired. There's my, there's, there's my, my, my Trump invitation. You're fired with a little hand. Move. You're fired. You're fired. And get somebody competent to run it. How is this unexpected? But anyway, back to the article here. And I quote, Mr. Kashkari here, wages are not going up as fast as inflation. So most Americans, real wages, real incomes are going down. He said, I mean, typically we think about wage-driven inflation where wages grow quickly and that leads to higher prices in a self-fulfilling spiral. That is not happening yet. In other words, the real value of your wage is going down, inflation is going up, and it's not being driven by a boom economy. So what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The chickens are coming home to roost. How about over the last couple of decades, actually last decade and a half, printing, somebody over there, I can just imagine some person in a closet at the Federal Reserve, you know, with a, you know, the dark screen with the green numbers on there, typing ones and zeros. They don't, they don't even have to print it anymore. They can, digi they can make digital dollars and just do a wire transfer. Some little skinny guy, bald-headed guy sitting in the closet looking at the dark screen with green numbers on it, just typing ones and zeros, making money. How about 30 trillion, over 30 trillion dollars that we have borrowed and put into circulation over the last 15 years under multiple administrations, both Republican and Democrat? People, those chickens are coming home to roost. I have been saying to my students now in economics class that we are in for some really bad economic times, that it is coming. I've been saying this for two, three, four, five, six years now. 
I remember when people were having meltdowns during the Obama administration when our in 2014 when our when we raised the debt ceiling Congress raised the debt ceiling to over 14 trillion dollars the debt the debt ceiling that's the like the federal government's credit card limit right the last two years of the of the Trump administration love Donald Trump don't get me wrong but they couldn't come to the the Congress and the president because of the Democrat, uh, the Democrats' uh, majority, in the in the House of Representatives, couldn't come to an agreement on what what the debt limit should be in spending. So they just decided we're going to suspend it, and they gave the federal government a credit card with no limit. And of course, as you know, we we went and and printed and digitized and spent in the name of COVID several trillion dollars, six seven trillion dollars on that. And so what is going on now, besides, the, you know, yes, the economy is open, opening up, people are going out and spending more, supply chains are adjusting, but hey, we've had a year now to adjust to the supply chains reopening. Yeah, you got the war in Ukraine, but we were energy sufficient before that thing started. The price of gas went up 60%, it was already up 60%, 50-60% nationwide before old Vlad decided to go and start a war in Ukraine. Side note, he did that because he knows that the United States is weak right now. We have weak leadership, and he thought he could get away with it. He still thinks he's going to get away with it. But back to the topic of national debt. The main reason that we are experiencing inflation the way that we are now is because of reckless fiscal policy, reckless creation of money, reckless management irresponsible management on both the part of the Federal Reserve and the United States federal government. By the way, the Federal Reserve is not, if you they make, they make our money look at it, it says federal, federal Reserve banknote on any piece of paper money. The Federal Reserve is not part of the federal government. It is a separate entity created in 1913. 1913, 1914, it came into an ex existence and that's a topic for a whole nother day. If you go to uh, Blaze TV, Glenn Beck, a few years ago, did a really great series on the history of the Federal Reserve, how it came into existence. I highly recommend that to you. Go listen, go listen to Glenn, tell all about it, and I won't have to. You won't have to listen to me. I might be able to take it, and like I've done for my students, take all of that information, synthesize it, and put it in a format that's easier, uh, e easier, you know, more streamlined. But Glenn really gets into it. He's he. Glenn, Mr. Beck does great work. So that's what's going on. The dollar is adjusting itself to its true value after after all of this money has been, and, and especially the last two years with that massive inject, injection of trillions of dollars into the economy. And those chickens are coming home to roost. And then we have the Federal Reserve trying to restrict the amount of money out there flowing around. So they made all this money, printed it, threw it out there into circulation. And now they're making it, they're trying to make it harder for that money to flow around. It's out there, but they're trying to make it harder for it to flow around out through the economy by raising interest rates, right? Among other things, the main, main tool that they're using right now is raising interest rates. There are some other tools that the Federal Reserve has to slow the flow of money in the economy slow that down. So we're in a bad situation. The president 
I, you know, I don't know if he really, you know, he's reading off a teleprompter when he says a lot of this. That was a video what I played for you at the beginning, and we scratched the record and stopped him. That was recorded. It wasn't a press conference. It was something where he stood up in front of a podium at the White House out on the back porch somewhere and read off a teleprompter what somebody wrote for him to say. It's actually about 12 minutes long. He goes on to talk about a bunch of other things that we'll get to some other time. Uh, he continued to gaslight Americans, a gaslight that's a kind of a colloquialism for manipulating people, making you believe something that that isn't. I have to explain that that term to my students. As Rush used to say, for those of you in Rio Linda, if there's actually somebody in Rio Linda listening, gaslight, that's what it means to manipulate you and make you believe something that isn't real. I always, you know, when Rush, I love Rush. I'll do a whole, I need to do a whole segment on Rush Limbaugh. And I, I started listening to Rush when I was a freshman in high school, 1989, 1990. I remember cutting class and hiding, and my dad was a biology teacher at the school, sitting in the biology supply closet, listening to Rush on the radio in the morning because I wanted to hear Rush. Rush, the great one, the Maharishi. But every time Rush mentioned the people in Rio Linda, California, I always kind of felt, I always laughed, but I always kind of felt sorry for the people that live there. He basically said they're a bunch of dunces. And there's a reason why he did that, which is a, a whole other story in itself. But that's it. There you go. The president's gaslighting Americans on, on the economy, trying to, just like they did last week, saying, well, you know, yeah, we've had two quarters of negative negative GDP growth, but that's not really an economy. There's other things. Well, you know what? Open up the textbook. I'm, a, I'm an econ teacher. Open up to the definition, the textbook definition of recession, and it is two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth. And my guess is, and they did this the previous quarter, they're going to go back and they're going, it was uh, GDP grew, it was a negative 0.9, almost 1%, so 0.9%. Last month, my guess is I would not be surprised if they went back and they adjusted that up. They've done that before. They did it, I believe, the last quarter they did that. They they said the negative growth, the, the GDP was, I think they said it was actually positive. And then they came back and readjust, readjusted it after looking at more data and said, nope, it's negative. It could very well be that the that the powers that be will look at that and they'll come back and say, no, you know what? It's it was worse than that. It wasn't 0.9%. I wouldn't be surprised to see something similar to last quarter. You know, 1, 1.1, 1 1.2, 1 1.4. So moving on to other things. The Inflation Reduction Act, they ought to slap a warning label on that thing. What a deceiving title. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here on that. I know it's been covered in the news media a lot. It should be a violation of public disclosure laws for that thing not to come to the president with a big giant warning label on it. Public disclosure laws, those are the laws that require things like cigarette packages and food and medicines to have warning labels, letting consumers know of any potentially harmful side effects. Well, I'm going to give you the warning label right now. I'm going to tell you what should be in the fine print or if this were a commercial on TV, you know, you see the commercial on, on TV that's got the whatever medication, uh, the new medication, Paxlovid, as, as the president referred to the Medicare Paxlovid, right? 
Paxlovid, and then you get the person that talks really fast. May cause blood to shoot from your eyes. May cause violent diarrhea. Diarrhea may cause sudden cardiac arrest. They say it really fast. Well, I'm going to give you that right now, only not as fast and in in more detail. So here's a warning label that should be on this Inflation Reduction Act. Let me begin by saying that no nation has ever taxed itself into prosperity. Rush Limbaugh's thirty or thirty list of thirty-five undeniable truths. 1994 version that is number three on the list slapping the name inflation reduction act on this law does not mean that it's going to reduce inflation indeed it's not going to prediction right now i'll write it like i'll go on record right now it is not going to reduce inflation and senator manchin holy cow what in the world happened with that guy what why did he go and and see this is this is a good example of why you cannot trust the so-called moderate half the time. They lick their fingers, stick it up into the air, and see which way it's blowing. What is he getting out of this? He's doing some tremendous damage to his state. But anyway, it was Senator Manchin and later Senator Sinema, Senator two uh, so-called moderate Democrats, that finally came around to, came in line with the rest of those in their party and are, and are going to vote to move this legislation forward. The president, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to punish you by playing the recording of him, but in that speech that he gave that I cut short, that 12-minute speech where he read from the teleprompter about how great the economy is, he goes on to talk about this Inflation Reduction Act and how great it's going to be, and so on. Well, according to the Penn Wharton budget model, you're probably asking yourself, what's that? The Penn Wharton budget model is hosted by the University of Pennsylvania, otherwise known as PWBM. And this is reading directly from their website here. PWBM is a nonpartisan research-based initiative that provides accurate, accessible, and transparent economic analysis of public policy's fiscal impact. Using the project's research briefs and interactive budget tools, enables analysis of legislation while it's drafted. PWBM serves as an honest broker at the intersection of business and public policy, providing rigorous analysis without policy advocacy. The model is widely used by politically unaligned groups like the Tax Policy Center. And in this case, looking at the website here, this budget model, projects that the Inflation Reduction Act would reduce deficits by $248 billion by 2031. So over the next nine years, eight, nine years or so. However, if you look in the fine details here, and they're talking about talking about reducing the budget, being fiscally responsible, fiscally responsible and so forth, it, they project that it will reduce the deficit by $248 billion by 2031 if the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act subsidies don't go away. The Affordable Care Act has uh, subsidies, help people get insurance, uh, premium tax credits, things like this. These are scheduled to go away by 2025. If this goes away, 
then it is going to cost the government more money. And I, I guarantee you that those tax credits, I'll go on record with this right now and say that probably they will not go away. You will see Democrats in Congress lobby very heavily to keep those tax credits or otherwise expand the subsidies or who knows, maybe before 2031, they'll go for single payer healthcare. And then we'll be in a whole different ball game when it comes to looking at budgets. So if they do that, if they continue these tax credits for the Affordable Care Act, the government will save $248 billion, billion with a B. And the federal budget is somewhere in the neighborhood of around, it's been around $4 trillion a year, maybe a little more, maybe a little less over the last several years. And we're spending on average, not counting COVID, on your average year, around $2 trillion a year that we do not have. Between $800 billion and $200 trillion a year. So $248 billion over eight years is like spitting in the ocean. It's it's not much. I mean, yeah, it's $240 billion. That's, that's an incredible amount, but not much. However, if they keep the tax credits for the Affordable Care Act, which I can guarantee you, if they haven't come up with another solution that's even more expensive, they will want to keep it. The deficit is reduced by $89 billion. By $89 billion. Note to self, this bill, once it is signed into law, is going to appropriate an additional extra $80 billion over the next 10 years for the IRS. So there you have it. We're probably going to save, if this is correct, $89 billion. And then we're going to turn around and hand $80 billion to the IRS to hire 80,000 new IRS agents to go after you. I guarantee you they're not going to be only after those who are the higher wage earners. They're going to go after everybody. Do you really want the IRS to have another 80,000 IRS agents? They're going to expand. They're going to like double the size of the IRS with this. I think if you went out and you ask the average person on the street what they thought about that right, left, center, they would probably think this is maybe not the best idea. Well, it's also going to raise taxes. And according to the, according to this, uh, let me go back to inflation. Well, according to, and inflation is a hard thing to, to, to project. I mean, you, you have the the Federal Reserve, you have Janet Yellen, who used to be the Federal Reserve chairperson, who is now the U.S. Secretary of Treasury, saying that they're blindsided by this inflation. They can't understand why it's so high. They're trying to comprehend it. They couldn't predict it. A year ago, they were all on record saying this is going to be transitory. This is, this is temporary. It's going to go away. So I don't know how you predict inflation 10 years out. You can get it. You can you can get a handle on it short term. So, with respect to inflation, this Inflation Reduction Act, according to uh, the Penn Wharton budget model, it is not going to reduce inflation in the short term. It's not not going to help it at all. In the long term, it's harder to say. And they say, well, if everything plays out and everything 
is hunky dory in the universe well then it will it will decrease inflation in the future a little bit well here's the deal you like i said you cannot predict inflation what this is going to do is it is going to raise taxes on a lot of people and yes it's supposed to raise taxes on those according to the president he said only on those earning $400,000 a year more. Well, that's not true. That is that is inaccurate. It is going to raise taxes on those earning around $200,000 or more. But it is all it will also according to the Joint Committee on Tax on Taxation, the Joint Committee on Taxation. This is a United States Senate committee that commissions studies and just this last week the committee, which is a joint committee, meaning meaning not run just by Democrats or by Republicans, it's it has uh, equal or senators from both parties on this committee, and they, according to their study, in 2023 taxes will increase by 16.7 billion dollars on American taxpayers earning less than 200 thousand dollars a year. A nearly 17 billion dollar tax targeted targeted exclusively at low and middle income earners next year right in the middle of inflation the 17 billion alone is confirmation that the biden pledge and i'm quoting here from senator mark crapo from idaho the 17 billion dollar hit alone is confirmation that the biden pledge to not raise taxes on anyone earning less than four hundred thousand dollars is shattered by the latest tax and spend bill that would be the inflation reduction act the proposal would raise another $14.1 billion in taxes from taxpayers earning between $200,000 and $500,000. According to data, 98% of all tax returns filed by those in the $200,000 to $500,000 bracket are filed by those earners earning between $200,000 and $400,000 with at least three-fourths of the income in the $200,000 to $500,000 bracket coming from those who earn below 400,000 so that means between 200,000 and 399,999 meaning that it is likely that at least half of all new tax revenue next year would be raised from those earning under $400,000 a year you might be saying to yourself well i don't make $400,000 a year most people don't most people don't make 200 250 300,000 a year there are scenarios. If you look at you look at a state, you look at a state like California. Let's say you've got a firefighter who is one income in the household and a nurse in the same household, and let's say they're both printing and pulling in seventy five, eighty thousand to maybe ninety thousand dollars a year. You come close to that two hundred thousand dollar mark. And if you're living in California and you're living on the coast, or you're living in some places on the East Coast, you're going to have, especially you know, you're looking at New York, the big cities. DC, you have to have that type of income in order to be able to afford even a middle-class standard of living in those places. What this is, it is, is it is going to be a tax on a lot of small business owners. A great number of small business owners run their taxes as personal income taxes. There are also a lot that have their income tied up with different types of investments and things like this. So your wage earners that are in this area that are being that's being targeted 
are people largely who worked really hard to earn what they have. That's not to say that somebody who inherited something didn't have to work super hard to get it, doesn't deserve what they have. Rush Limbaugh, 1994 list, undeniable truth number two, the vast majority of the quote rich, I'll put quotes on this, rich in this country did not inherit their wealth. They earned it. They are the country's achievers, producers, and job creators. And that's exactly the situation here. This legislation is going to punish job creators. It is going to punish small business owners. It is punitive. And looking forward down the road, there are going to be some very serious negative economic consequences because of this. Quoting from Senator Crapo from Idaho again, throughout the 10-year window of this legislation, the average tax rate for nearly every single income category would increase. By 2031, I continue quoting Senator Crapo, by 2031, when the new green energy credits and subsidies provide an even greater benefit to those at higher incomes, those earning below $400,000 are projected to bear as much as two-thirds of the burden of the additional tax revenue collected that year. So again, the president, I don't know how conscious he is of all of this, how much he looks at this. I don't know that he cares. What he cares about is taxing and spending. That's what his party does. That's what the left does. Stick it, class warfare, stick it to those who have more than you, envy those who have more than you, and punish them. And when you do that, you punish everybody. That is my prediction with this. That's my warning label that I would stick to this and give to the president if I could. Check out Year of the Rooster, first 72 hours on Amazon.com. It's available in Kindle format for $2.99 or for free if you have Kindle Unlimited $7.99 paperback version. Year of the Rooster is a novel of historical fiction about war between the United States and China. Far-fetched? Could China pursue global dominance via conflict? If one looks to human history for an answer to this question, the answer is yes. So far, all great empires were born of conflict. All great empires and nations have historically had to fight to maintain their place of dominance. What then would a conflict of this sort look like? How would it begin? The historical record is rife with instances of surprise attack. If you want to be scared out of your mind, take a look at Year of the Rooster, first 72 hours on Amazon.com. Don't mess with me. <laughs> and there you have it. The Wicked Witch of the West is back from her Asia trip. No, she didn't come on a broomstick. She flew in a U.S. Air Force plane, very similar to Air Force One. Air Force, if you didn't know, has a fleet of over 400 jets, I believe it is. Large and small, used to transport dignitaries all over the world. She was also escorted by U.S. fighter jets on her trip, at least in the portion of her trip where she went to Taiwan. There's been a lot of speculation this last week, at least amongst uh, conservative pundits and talk show hosts and lots of speculation on why Nancy went, why a Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, third in line to the presidency, 
So if the president dies, the vice president, of course, becomes president of the president and vice president. Both die at the same time. I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for that. I would never advocate for that. But if they were both to meet their demise at the same moment, regardless of who the president was, from what party, doesn't matter. The Speaker of the House would become president. It goes president, vice president, speaker of the House, and then president pro tem of the Senate. That is the line of presidential succession. And then it goes through the president's cabinet members one by one in the order that the various departments of the federal government were established. So there, there you go. But she's back. She, Nancy Pelosi. I say that, I give that as an example because she is one of the most powerful people in the United States, one of the most influential when it comes to steering what legislation goes through fast track in the House of Representatives the priorities, legislative priorities, and otherwise, usually you see the president of the United States, it's the, the president, the executive branch's job to represent the United States diplomatically. The president runs the State Department. That is a function of the executive branch. Nevertheless, you will see politicians make trips and things like that. Usually when politicians make a trip, it's not big news. We don't hear about it. It's a blurb in the news. It's not a big talking point. However, this time it was because Nancy Pelosi chose to go to the island of Taiwan. In a previous episode, I explained the difference between Taiwan, the Republic of China, and mainland China, Communist China, the People's Republic of China, run by the Communist Party of China. And as I explained, the Chaikoms want Taiwan. They do not recognize Taiwan independence nor technically does the United States, and they get really miffed when anybody does anything that could be interpreted as recognizing the government of Taiwan as a legitimate separate government, which it is. It is. I, newsflash, Chaikoms, the Republic of China is on Taiwan. The legitimate government is on Taiwan it is a democratic government. It traces its roots all the way back pre-Civil War to Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. So the Chinese always get bent out of shape. And the question is, why did the Wicked Witch of the West, Nancy Pelosi, decide to do this? Well, she had a trip in mind anyway through Asia, and she threw it on her docket of things a few months ago that she was going to make this stop in Taiwan. And there's been a lot of speculation. I've heard some conservatives say, well, the president should have told her not to do it. A lot of Republicans in Congress and other conservatives, uh, pundits have said, you know, by all means, go ahead. You should have taken some Republicans with you and taken them with you and thumbed your nose at the Chinese. Well, let me give you the real reason, at least the reason I think Nancy Pelosi added this to her docket to her itinerary, this stop in Taiwan, and what she thinks she's going to gain by doing this. Here it goes. So Nancy Pelosi stopped, and here's the headline, Nancy Pelosi, Taiwan visit, an unequivocal statement that America stands with Taiwan. That's great. I'm glad we're going to stand with Taiwan. That's what we should do. Notice the date line. Here's the date line, August 2nd. 2022, just this last week. What happened on August 3rd? What was happening on August 3rd? Well, I pulled it up. 
There were headlines all over the place on what happened on August 3rd. Let's back it up even a little bit farther than August 3rd. Let's go all the way back to April. Let's go back to April, May, the end of May. May 29th. Here's the headline. Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, arrested for DUI in Napa County. I pulled up the arrest report. So let's let's go back to August 3rd. So on August 2nd, the speaker is in Taiwan causing all of this big hullabaloo. And the Chinese are upset and carrying on military exercises and it's we're on the brink and you know, it's brinkmanship is what we would have called this there's a whole chapter in any US history book on brinkmanship in the 1950s during the Cold War we're back to that it looks like with the Chinese here and the Taiwan situation and the South China Sea. But what happened on August 3rd? There were some headlines about it, but the headlines were far overshadowed and pretty much ignored in the mainstream media other than some of the conservative sources on Mr. Pelosi. Mr. Pelosi got a DUI. He was out there in May driving around in his Porsche. He got schnockered. By the way, if you didn't know it, Nancy Pelosi is one of the most wealthy, besides being one of the most powerful, she's one of the most wealthy members of Congress because of her husband and her her husband's insider trading, allegedly, allegedly, and, and deals, business deals, buying and selling stock and timing. He seems to time it just right, okay? And a lot of this stuff that he buys and sells is, is interestingly enough tied to firms doing business with and getting contracts with the federal government or legislation of some sort. So I pull it up, Napa County, and this is from their county uh, court site here, the District Attorney's Office actually of Napa County. Napa County District Attorney's Office press release, August 3rd, 2022. This is the August, uh, between August 2nd and August 3rd is when Nancy was in Taiwan. Paul Pelosi arraigned on DUI with injury charges and pleads not guilty. There it is. That's the press release. I'll read the first paragraph today. Paul Pelosi was arraigned in Napa County Superior Court by Judge Monique Langhorn on charges filed by the Napa County District Attorney's Office based upon an automobile collision and driving under the influence arrest on May 28, 2022. Those charges include driving under the influence of alcohol, causing injury and driving with a 0.08 blood alcohol level or higher, causing injury. The matter was heard today in Department 3 at 8.30 a.m., blah, 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 blah. There you have it. I think uh, in one of the shows, I, I don't watch these shows. I will look at headlines, and if I see a headline, one caught my attention. It actually caught the attention of my good wife, and she sent this to me. She's like, hey, check this out. And so I'll give her credit for this one. And here's the headline. McEnany calls out fancy Nancy's life of privilege after new details emerge from Paul Pelosi's DUI address, uh, arrest, DUI arrest. And this is from this last week, August 5th. So co-host of the show Outnumbered, Fox News show Outnumbered, Kaylee, uh, Kaylee McEnany, former press secretary of Donald Trump, 
2020, 2021, somewhere in there. She was his press secretary. Pretty on point. She criticized Nancy and Paul Pelosi on Friday for their, that was this, uh, just this last week, August 5th, for their life of privilege, their quote, life of privilege on outnumbered. So go ahead and take a listen here. This is what Kaylee McEnany said, and, and this helps to answer the question of why Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, why she went there when she did. She could have backed out this itinerary. She put this itinerary out a few months ago. She could have just very quietly just not shown up, but she made some statements and it was it got it got hyped up. And the hype began right around the time that old Paul decided to go and wreck his Porsche while drunk. So go go ahead and listen. Here's uh, McEnany. But fancy Nancy, I mean, it is really interesting, their lifestyle. You know, you've got this freezer with this very expensive, very good Jenny's <laughs> ice, good cream, ice cream. And she's on late night TV parading it around. And then you've got these very questionable financial dealings. And she essentially had to be railroaded into supporting this stock act that, like, everyone in Congress supports. And then you have her sauntering into the hair salon yeah. on camera when no one else can get their hair done. And then this with her husband and the police privilege card, as I call it. This is a life of privilege. This yes. is what it looks yeah. like. And this yeah. is what Americans disdain. It's not the wealth. It's the using it in a way that is so hypocritical uh, and, and completely counter to how the average American has to operate. So there you have it. McEnany really lays it out there. She did not do it in the same context in which I am putting it. Again, I'm, I am giving you the reason why I think Nancy Pelosi timed her trip and included Taiwan on that stop. And it has everything to do with her legacy and all of these things that McEnany mentions, her, her, her quote, life of privilege. I mean, during the pandemic, she makes a, a, a video that she releases and she's in her house with this, what is it, it was like this $20,000, $40,000 freezer full of ice cream, expensive ice cream on late night. It's on late night TV. That's where it was, right? I don't remember what program. And that and then taking flack for it she goes there's COVID. everything's shut down nobody can go anywhere and she goes to her hair salon in san francisco and gets her hair done and gets caught rules for thee but not for me because i'm better than you you you, you are the unwashed masses see i i'm the shot caller you got to do what i say but you don't you don't know what's good for you 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 get where i'm going with this but anyway she's all of these things and then her husband and his corrupt dealings, allegedly, and her being forced into supporting the Stock Act, but was huge bipartisan support for it, that put limits on or trying to address this, this deal of corrupt insider trading. Nancy Pelosi, you know, I mean, there are other members of Congress who are guilty of this. They get elected, they stay there for a lifetime, and they make millions and millions of dollars. I mean, what Nancy... I should look it up. Go ahead, Google it. Look it up. What is the net worth of Paul and Nancy Pelosi? I think it's over $100 million. It's, it's millions and millions of dollars. They're very, very wealthy. So what she is doing here, number one, she was drawing attention away from this negative press. And number two, it's about her legacy. Nancy Pelosi and her husband, but Nancy, the person in power, the one that's going to have the legacy is 82 years old. She's older than Sleepy Joe. That's what it's that's what this is all about covering up for her husband Paul and it's it's about her legacy 
this trip to Taiwan and she timed it just right. She, she pulled that out of the, out of the news there, the news cycle, she was able to, to overshadow that and so forth with her trip to Taiwan. And that's what that was all about. Check out my blog, the Smith papers at smithpapers.com. You can learn a little bit more about my background there. And if you like reading about history, you'll probably enjoy my blog. Again, take a look at smithpapers.com. So moving on to another news story to wrap out this week here. Another news story on our dear leader, Joe Biden. He's he's done the best he can to put a, as positive of a spin as he can this week on the economy with the unemployment numbers, which we already explained. Here's a news headline. This is from the UK, reported by the UK Daily Mail. Vice President Joe Biden met with Chinese Communist Party-linked energy executives at the White House in 2014. Now, continuing here, Vice President Joe Biden reportedly met at the White House two, two Chinese energy executives who worked with a CCP-linked company, Wang Jiang, on July 25th, 2014, between 11 a.m. and 12.15 p.m., emails from Hunter's, the infamous Hunter Biden laptop reveal. What's the problem with this? We'll delve a little bit more deeply into this. I'm going to roll some audio here for you. This is President Biden. Uh, Pinocchio moment here for you uh, is what this is going to turn out to be. But this is President Biden talking about his business dealing or his son's business dealings. Long story short, Joe Biden and his staff and or his staff over the last couple of years have claimed very adamantly several times that the president has no part in the family business and that the documentation on the laptop, at least initially, that's undeniable now that it was Russian disinformation, that he has had no involvement in his family business. In fact, quantifying that 18 times over the last nine years, according to Breitbart, that the president has said he has no dealings with his family business. His brother, Jim, and his business dealings brother, by the way, has made millions. And so has Hunter made millions of dollars off of deals that the average person would have never gotten. I mean, you look at Hunter Biden out there smoking crack and all that other stuff that he was doing. And you tell me that you're, you're telling me that that guy is out there working these multi-million dollar deals in other countries to borrow a phrase from the president. Come on, man. And in this clip, you have a, I believe it's a Fox News reporter asks him on the campaign trail whether or not he has ever discussed with his son Hunter any sort of business dealings. I've never spoken to my son about business And so how do you know? Here's what I know. I know Trump deserves to be investigated. If you didn't hear that very well, what he said was in response to that question, I've never spoken with my son about his overseas business deals. This was at the time when right during the campaign, I'm not sure if the laptop story had come out yet, but he makes that statement, Biden does, and then he launches into an attack on Donald Trump and about why he thinks he should be investigated for whatever Biden thought he should be investigated for at the moment. Probably a grab bag of things, orange man bad being the first on the list. But anyway, then we have the laptop come out, which we now know was not Russian disinformation. We now know that the FBI intentionally decided not to say publicly, even though they knew that it was real. And so this is Russian disinformation and we had to wait till after the election for all the news to come out about it. And then they backtracked and said, oh yeah, well, you know, this is real. What a contrast. You know, you have President Trump and his campaign and they literally, they got wiretaps on 
members of his campaign, people working for him, then candidate Trump because of a report put together by an opposition research firm that was funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and actually contained Russian disinformation. And the FBI took that knowing that the sources were not, they were un, they knew that they were false. They knew that they were not verifiable sources of information of intelligence. And they got a warrant to spy from a judge. They lied to a judge, got a warrant to spy. This is all documented. Everybody knows this. During the campaign, here, here are a couple of things that uh, Biden had to say about that laptop. Of course, he's not. he's been asked about it since then and doesn't have a word to say about it. 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said that this is has all the care Four, five former heads of the CIA. Both parties say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. This is classic Trump. We have four days left and all of a sudden there's a laptop. There's overwhelming evidence that from the intelligence community that the Russians are engaged. My guess is that the Republicans, once they take control of the House and the Senate, well, the House for sure, probably the Senate's kind of up in the air, that they will have committee hearings and definitely have some questions regarding this, regarding the laptop, questions for the FBI. They've already held hearings in the Senate and grilled Director Ray on some of that. My guess is that there will be a reckoning. At least I hope there will. Back to Hunter Biden and his overseas business dealings and whether or not the president knew about it and whether or not he has benefited from those. Why, why would that be a problem if the president, you know, back when he was vice president or in, at any other point, knew about his son's business dealings, met his business par partners, had anything to do with it? Well, it compromises the president. It puts them in a situation where the same thing that they worried about with, with Donald Trump and that fake dossier and the golden shower and all that, that it opens him up to blackmail by a foreign power. Besides the obvious impropriety and abuse of office, if he indeed was using his office to assist his family members, which I think he was, and a lot of other people think he was, for personal gain. It's exactly what they accused Trump of doing in that phone call with Volodymyr Zelensky when he asked Volodymyr Zelensky, the newly elected at the time president of Ukraine, to look into the firing of the prosecutor that happened to be investigating the company that hired Hunter Biden and was in the process of investigating him when he was fired at the behest of then Vice President Biden. Uh, by the way, his if you didn't know it, his son Hunter received millions of dollars in payments for doing absolutely nothing for that company. It's a long story. Go to my blog. If you go to my blog page, which I've already mentioned in my little blog plug, but you go to my blog site, there is a story on there. If you scroll down, there is a story that I wrote. I actually took a less, I took my students at the time wanted to know what was going on with the Trump impeachment, and I wanted to break down everything that happened in that timeline. And you can't talk about the first Trump impeachment without getting into a discussion on what, who was this prosecutor and, and why was Trump even mentioning? Why did he even mention this prosecutor and Hunter Biden or the Bidens in that phone call with Zelensky? Go to my blog and look for the article titled, Could 
Trump impeachment 1.0 lead to Biden impeachment 1.0 after the 2022 midterm elections? I break down in very simple terms the timeline of the Trump impeachment and then how that relates to Joe Biden and the timeline of Biden family activities in Ukraine. So like I said, I firmly believe that the Biden family has been involved in corrupt dealings. Do you have any proof? Well, not anything beyond what has been reported in the news here. Let's look at this article then and why this is, is potentially troubling for the president. It says here, and the president has alleged, and uh, Pisaki, uh, Jen Pisaki, when she was a White House press secretary, straight up said at least once, maybe more than once, that the president has, she reaffirmed it, has never had anything to do or any discussions with his son, Hunter, or his brother, for that matter, about their business dealings in general or their overseas business dealings. So in 2012, Seneca Global Advisors, this is Hunter Biden's business, had a client named Great Point Energy that partnered with Wayne Zhang, that's a company with ties to the Chinese Communist Party, on a $1.25 billion natural gas plant to be built in communist China. Chinese vice president at the time, who is now the dictator, the leader, dear leader of China, Xi Jinping, was present at the signing deal between these two businesses, which are associated with Hunter Biden. Wang Zhang is also known for dealing with a copper mine owned by North Korea, the North Korean commies. The deal between, back to the deal between Great Point Energy and Wang Zhang is notable, reading from the article here, because Hunter Hunter's business Rosemont Seneca partner also invested in the Fisker car company that was bought by Wang Jiang after Fisker went bankrupt in 2013. And Hunter was listed as a creditor owed money on Fisker's filings, the Daily Mail reports. According to the report, Hunter had purchased one of the Fisker's electric vehicles for $142,300, but the car didn't work. And Wang Jiang president, American president, a guy named Pin Ni, who had met with Joe Biden only four days before in the White House. So he meets with Joe Biden in the White House four days before this, offers four days after this meeting in an email to uh, fix his, his electric car. Uh, the emails reveal a what a close relationship that the Biden family had with Chinese Communist Party-linked companies, uh, at least this company that acquired, that purchased an American company while Hunter Biden was at the same time peddling influence and access to then Vice President Joe Biden. So if this story is true, President Biden could add Pinocchio to his, his uh, substitute Pinocchio for his middle name there. According to a Harris poll, 58% of voters, and this is continuing here in the article, believe that Joe Biden has played a role in his family's business. 60% say Hunter Biden has sold influence and access to the president. So that would be probably all Republicans that they asked and a good number of uh, independent voters, maybe Democrats too, for it to hit that number of 58%. Reading in the article, it should be noted that before Fisker, that's the electric car company that sounds like they made not good electric cars, before they went bankrupt and were later sold to Wang Zhang, the Wang Zhang firm, Joe Biden claimed to have brokered a massive deal between Fisker Automotive and an automotive plant with a taxpayer-funded loan. In 2016, China purchased the electric vehicle company Fisker Automotive after U.S. taxpayers had already spent $193 million funding the, the company's electric vehicle research. It's, it's like this, this complex web of corruption here. You have the vice president of the United States uh, lobbying 
and working to get funding or taxpayer funded loans or taxpayer backed loans to the tune of nearly $200 million for this company that was supposed to make electric cars, but sounds like they didn't make good cars. And then that company goes broke. And where did that, where did that nearly $200 million go? Who knows? And then the company gets bought out by a Chinese company that has business dealings with Hunter through his Rosemont Seneca venture capital funding company, basically funding projects all over the world and getting funding for different projects. And Hunter's making bank off of this. And it's all linked to Chinese Communist Party, Hunter Biden, and, and all of this other stuff. And this is just one example of a whole trove of information available on that laptop. And now, now they've accessed his, his phone records. He backed up his iPhone on that computer, everything in it. And they have text messages and all kinds of things. And they're, somebody could spend all day long for several days in a row, or maybe longer than that, going over all of these types of deals. This is just one. So to wrap up this week, we're going to kind of do something fun here. We're going to have a Kamala Harris moment. And now deep thoughts by Kamala Harris. Ukraine is a country in Europe. It exists next to another country called Russia. Russia is a bigger country. Russia is a powerful country. Russia decided to invade a smaller country called Ukraine. So basically that's wrong. And there we have a profound thought from Pillar of Intellect, also known as Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. We'll wrap it up with that. Thanks for listening to this episode. I appreciate it. Check out my blog at smithpapers.com. You can also follow me on Truth Social at Smith Talk. Look for Smith Talk on Truth Social. You can message me on there, follow me on there. If you have any suggestions or questions, ideas for topics, let me know. Until next time.